So we are taking a step back from Matthew tonight. So uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And as you think about life, what are some of the guarantees in it? Like, what are some of the things you can expect? Death, okay? Death and tax. Like, those are the big ones, right? And today is uh, April the 19th, so yesterday was like tax day, right? So, um, so yeah, death and taxes are the big ones. There you go. Anything else? Anything else that you feel like, hey, this is a solid bet in life. This is probably going to happen. Love, okay, that's a good one. Heaven or hell, that's a good one. Yeah. Trials and tribulations. We're going to stop there because that's exactly what we're talking about tonight. There's numerous things in addition to death and taxes that uh, the Bible does promise us we will see in life. And one of those is persecution, trials, and tribulations. And what I love so much about the Bible is it doesn't sugarcoat this reality. If you pay attention to what the Word of God says, this shouldn't surprise you. When trials, tribulations, difficulties come into life, it is exactly what God promised us in His Word would take place. And what the Bible does, it doesn't sugarcoat this reality. Instead, what it does is it shows us how we are to be prepared, how we are to handle these things. In 1 Peter, so this happens all throughout Scripture, but that's actually exactly what 1 Peter is about. 1 Peter is about standing firm in suffering. Or the, another theme people will give you for 1 Peter is the Christian's response to suffering. The Christian's response to persecution. And that was really important to the people that Peter was writing to. Peter was writing to the people that were under the Emperor Nero, the Roman Emperor Nero, who was just a horrible person persecuted the Christians heavily, really hated everybody, and was just extraordinarily evil, murdered many, many people, and yet Peter is writing to them how to respond as followers of Christ in these types of situations. And so the passage we're going to look at tonight addresses this subject very directly. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. And Peter tells, some, tells us something very surprising in these passages, this passage. Something that is not our human natural response when it comes to suffering, when it comes to trials. Peter tells us, rejoice in sanctifying trials. Rejoice in sanctifying trials. And I'm going to give you three points that he gives us in these passages. The first one we're going to look at, verse 12, the promise of suffering. The promise of suffering. The second thing we're going to look at is our response to suffering. And the third thing we'll look at is the result of suffering. But let's just start with the promise of suffering. Again, this is throughout the Bible. This is not unique to Peter. But Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. There's nothing strange about suffering. This, 
this uh, persecution that they're enduring, the trial that they're enduring, there's nothing strange about it. It should be, if you study God's word, what do you expect? There's really weird things happening out there. Like there's a panel. There's like a panel moving around up there like a ghost. Freaking me out. But um, all right, here we go. So why, listen now, all right. Why, why should we expect persecution? And this is mainly about persecutions, but really these principles here don't just apply to persecution. It applies to trials of all sorts. It applies to our, when we suffer from sickness, when we suffer in difficult relationships, um, when things just simply go bad. Why should we not be surprised that these kind of things happen in, in life. Because Jesus said it's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, that's your first clue that this should not be a surprise. But what is it about the world we live in that causes trials? Sin. There's a big sin problem in this world, right? Right? And it's a big problem that affects us at many, many, many different levels. First of all, there's just the effects of sin around us, right? Like, why does creation decay? Why do animals die? Why do we get just, why do, as humans, why do we die? Because sin, when Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world, death, decay, destruction came with it. And we have to deal with the effects of that all around us. But then, what about the people that live around us? What's wrong with the people that live around us? Sin. The people that live around us are sinners. They sin continuously and they bring more death and chaos, more persecution. And then, what's wrong with us as individuals? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? Sin. This problem of sin is everywhere. It's in me. It's in you. It's in the people around us. It affects the world around us. We ourselves sin constantly, and we bring about, oftentimes, the own, our own consequences for our sin, right? Like, I go through my catalog of problems in life, and sometimes go look at Job. Like, Job is the great example. The problems that we have in life as individuals not always the direct result of a particular sin, right? Not always. But as I go through the catalog of issues I have in my own life, I'm telling you, by and large, I'm bringing about my own problems through sin, foolish decisions, and the destruction that comes with those things, right? Sin, the effects of it are all around us. Now, does that mean we should panic as Christians? Should we panic because the effects of sin are all around us and, like, things regularly go wrong. No, we shouldn't panic because what's amazing about the sovereignty of God and His wisdom is that He is never the source of sin. God is perfect in His holiness, okay? Don't ever get that mixed up. Yet, while being perfect in His holiness, completely unstained from sin, did you know He's in sovereign control of even sin? That's a hard concept to get your mind around, isn't it? It's really hard to get your mind around because there's just an extent to which your human wisdom can't match up with the fact that 
God is never the cause of sin, yet being holy, he is still able to use sin for his own purposes. But we have example after example in the Bible. I'll give you two prominent ones. Joseph. Remember what happened to Joseph? His brothers. Well, first of all, he was kind of prideful, you know. And then his brothers beat him up and decide, hey, let's just sell him into slavery. And then he's framed for crimes he didn't commit, thrown into jail. Yet God used all of that to get him in position, if you go back and read Genesis, to deliver most of the known world from famine at that time, right? And then at the end of his life, what does he say to his brothers, his own brothers who sold him into slavery and treated him so poorly? What does he say in Genesis 50-20 to his brothers? Exactly. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Can you get your mind around those verses? Like, was it evil what they did? Was it sinful? Absolutely. They meant it for evil, and it was evil. Yet God, being perfectly holy and sovereign, meant it for good. Used it for even his own purposes. I don't know about you, but my mind just, that's a big idea. That, but think about Jesus Christ. That's the preeminent example of God sovereignly using sin for the most ultimately good purposes possible. Was it sinful the way they persecuted Christ, accused him falsely, and murdered him on the cross? Was that sinful? 100%, right? Yet, whose love took Christ to the cross? God's love. For us, that was God's plan of reconciliation. So when you see evil of any sort in this world, and you're going to see it all the time, and when you experience evil and persecution like Peter's telling us, don't be surprised about it, it's never a cause for despair because we go back to the Word of God and we can confidently say, okay, yes, this is evil, but God, over and over again throughout history, in his sovereign wisdom, has used evil for his purposes. So do not be surprised by this fiery ordeal. And here again, Peter is most specifically talking about, in context, persecution. Persecution, an evil that comes up over and over again in the Bible. It starts immediately, right? Genesis chapter 3 Sin enters the world. Genesis chapter 4, Abel is being persecuted for his righteousness by Cain and murdered. It's, it's, it's instant, right? Go look through all the prophets of the Old Testament. How often does persecution come up? All the time. All the time. Page after page, right? In the New Testament, Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, is this something we should look at Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, you didn't tell us this was going to happen when you told us to follow you. Like, is this something Jesus disclosed to those who would follow him that they would be persecuted? Yeah, you better believe it, right? In Matthew 5, I'll flip through a few things here for us real quick. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, 
For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, or for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, that's basically the passage we're looking at tonight, condensed into two verses. Um, Matthew five forty three and 44, Jesus says, um, You have heard that it was said you shall love your, en- your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew ten sixteen, Jesus is telling, telling you, giving his 12 disciples instructions as he sends them out. And he says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Um, <clears throat> we could go on and on, right? You go further on in chapter 10, and he continues to tell them, like, hey, you know, uh, verse 21, brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You'll be hated by all because of my name. So this isn't a secret that Jesus is keeping from us, right? In fact, we would step back from a pu- purely human wisdom standpoint and be like, Jesus, I don't know if you're that good of a recruiter. Like, I don't know if this is exactly how you call people to follow you. But Jesus is always very clear. Here is the cost of being my disciple. Here is the cost of following me. And we could go all through the New Testament, go through Acts, go all through the entirety of the New Testament, and see this come up time and time again. So if you are in any way surprised by persecution, by trials in life, by difficulties, you just really haven't been paying attention, right? It is crystal clear for us. It is everywhere. And obviously this happens at varying degrees, right? Um, You've got places in the world absolutely today where what we're doing right now will get you killed. Absolutely. That happens this very moment on this planet in numerous places. Right now, we live in a time like Alejandro was talking about where by God's grace and thankfully, we're free to do this, right? But there's still... While you might not be put to death tonight, are there levels of persecution that you could fall into because of Christ? Absolutely. I mean, you think about friendships, especially if uh, you become a new believer as a young person. All of a sudden, some of those old relationships may become strained, right? Some of those old friends, you might have to break off some of those, or at least change in some pretty dramatic ways, some of those old friendships. Family members, you can run into strained relationships with family members who are unbelievers who will look at you and say, don't do that. You're going to really be one of those religious fanatics? Don't do that. Like, you really believe all that nonsense? Don't do that. You're going to have people whose relationships in your life become strained because of following Christ. So persecution is going to happen at varying levels in our lives. But if we are followers of Christ, it should be something that we expect. Don't be surprised. Instead, be prepared. And by God's grace, he's given us in his word many, many ways to be prepared. And again, I think these principles apply to other types of trials that we face in life. Right? Because the effects of sin hit us in many, many different ways. 
sickness and just the stresses of life and the day-to-day temptations that we have to fight. The remedy for all these different effects of sin in our life is the same. It's the grace of Jesus Christ applied to our life by the Holy Spirit through the truth of His Word. Always be getting ready. Don't be surprised. He says, and we're going to emphasize this as our third point, so I'm just going to glance on it real quick, but this is really kind of stealing thunder from the third point, um, where he says, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. Hold on to that, because that's going to be what we talk about significantly in the third part, the purpose or the result of our suffering. But before we get there, so we have the promise of suffering, what should be our response to suffering? Our response to suffering, and it's here in verse 13 and 14. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this matter. Now that sort of sounds... Again, talking strictly from a human perspective, from a natural perspective, rejoice in your suffering? That sounds kind of crazy, right? Because what do we normally rejoice over? Like, what is something that is easy to rejoice over? New pets. Yes, the good things that God gives us. It's easy to rejoice when those things come along. Good candy discounts. All right. Hey, rejoice. Thank God for everything that comes into your life, including candy discounts. What else? Days that you don't, does it, do those exist? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we, it's those good things in life. When we think of rejoicing, it's like, hey, somebody came to Christ. A friend of ours came to Christ. A family member rejoiced. Like we get a promotion at work. Something good happens for us. Rejoice. Somebody gets well from an illness. Rejoice. And yeah, we should thank God for those things. We should thank God for all the goodness that He gives us in this life. But, verse 13 is a little bit against our natural inclination. Peter reminds us, to the degree that you suffer in Christ, keep on rejoicing. And what's weird is He doesn't say, like, you know, if you suffer a little in Christ, Rejoice. Now, if it gets heavy, then I understand if it's tough to rejoice at that point. Because then your suffering has gotten heavy and that's just a whole thing. No, he says actually the opposite of that, right? He says to the degree that you suffer for Christ, keep on rejoicing. And the reason is because your exaltation, your exaltation and your joy will be even greater when Christ returns. See, here's the thing. Here's going to be the real test of whether or not you can rejoice in suffering. The question is this. Where is your hope? Where's your value? Like, where is your heart in terms 
Jesus what he treasures. Because it's easy for us to put our hope in the things of this world, right? I mean, as Americans, we're career-oriented and like kindergarten, you know? It's always like, okay, be good in school. You got to get a job. You got to go to college. Like, what's your job going to be? And, you know, there's wisdom in that. Like, God wants us to work and be hard workers and make a living for ourselves. Like, that's his normal mode of providing for his people is to work hard, right? So there's some wisdom there. But it's easy for us to, because of that emphasis, start to misplace our hope and our value in this world on our careers and our finances and our jobs. And what's the problem there? Those things can go away like that, like in an instant. Or your health. Like how many people, like they're fit, they're healthy, they're athletic, they're in good shape, and that's really what they value in life. Like they are passionate about their physical fitness. Well, how easy is it for your health to disappear like that? It's very easy, right? If your value and your hope your heart is invested in anything other than the kingdom of God, and if Christ isn't first in your heart, it is going to be impossible to do what Peter is saying. It's going to be impossible to um, rejoice when you suffer for the name of Christ, because when you suffer for the name of Christ, it's going to cost you worldly things. And so if your love and passion is worldly things, and those things begin to be robbed from you because of persecution, that's where the rejoicing is empty. That's where, that's where it's very difficult to do what Peter is saying. But Peter here, as a follower of Christ, he's telling us that our hope, our value, should be in Jesus Christ and His eternal kingdom. Um, I mean, that's exactly what God teaches us, what Jesus taught about hope, right? Like, go back to what we read a minute ago in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. He says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For you to agree with Jesus there, your value has to be in the kingdom of heaven. Your hope has to be in the kingdom of heaven, not in this earth. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Do you see the pattern there? Our lives, our hopes, are about heaven, are about eternity, God's eternal kingdom, not this present world. Hebrews chapter 11. Y'all familiar with Hebrews chapter 11? What's Hebrews chapter 11 all about? What, what happens there? I thought I heard somebody sneeze. He, faith, yeah. Hebrews chapter 11, it starts by defining for us faith. And then it goes on to give example after example from the Old Testament. Like it just runs through the Old Testament. It's like, Here's how this person lived by faith, how this person lived by faith. It says, now faith, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And now it's going to just run through example after example of faith from the Old Testament. But here's the key. 
I'm going to give you the common theme because in verse 13, he breaks it down to the common theme. Here's the common theme with all those Old Testament saints that persevered, rejoiced, and flourished in the face of persecution. The common theme is their hope was not in this world, but in God's eternal kingdom. Look at what he says after going through all these Old Testament saints in verse 13. He says, all these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. What he's saying there is that these Old Testament saints recognize that this earth is not our home. This earth, this life on this earth is not what is of ultimate value. What is of ultimate value is the eternal kingdom of God, Christ's eternal kingdom, which we have an inheritance in as his children. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is heaven, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to, to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Do you get that, what, he, what he's saying there about all those Old Testament saints in Hebrews chapter 11 that he points at is the examples of faith? The common theme is their hope was in heaven, not in this earth. And that is the key to rejoicing in suffering. That is the key to rejoicing in persecution. It's not rejoicing because suffering's good. No, that's a mental disease. Like, that's, it's not like, oh, I like pain. This is a good. No, that is absolutely not what it is. It is rejoicing because we know that we have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And the more we suffer on this earth, the more we see this earth as not being our home. What he's saying at the verse, end of verse 13 in First Peter chapter 4 is it's the more that we are going to rejoice when we see Christ our Savior. The more you feel like a foreigner in this world, the more you're going to rejoice when you get to your eternal home. Does that make sense? It's like the thirstier you are, how much better does that water taste when you finally get to drink from that water? The thirstier you are, it's, or what about when you're hungry, right? Like, Things that don't, eh, you know, that's okay. When you're really, in fact, this is a, <clears throat> a dating strategy, okay? Not yet, but this is like 10 years down the road. For now, we'll just call it a manly strategy. But for me, this is my dating strategy. I don't like eating much. Like, I like hamburgers, steaks, chips and salsa, and that's about it. And like, um, so, like dating, you know, like they invite you over and they're like, all right, here's these vegetables and like all these like fancy things. And I'm like, well, it looks kind of gross. But you don't want to be rude, right? Like, you gotta, like, you got to find a way to get this down. So here's the strategy. You, you're hungry. When you start, you start with what you like the least, okay? You're like, okay, I hate Wendy's, but I'm really hungry, so I'm going to go there first because I'm so hungry, they'll taste just a little bit better. And then you work your way down to what you like because then at the end, you're, like, kind of full. But, you know, you like chicken, okay, I guess. And so you can knock it down, right? Like, 
that is a good strategy. I got other eating strategies. I got a bunch, but we'll have to take those offline. The point being, the hungrier you are, the better that tastes, right? The better something tastes. The hungrier you are, the less satisfied you are with this world, with this life, the more of a foreigner you are in this world, the more satisfied you are when you get to your eternal home. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit and glory of God rests on you. You rejoice because you are a child of God. Now, Peter makes something very clear to us here, right? It's in um, verses 15 and 16. What kind of suffering should we rejoice in? Suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering for Christ, not suffering for our own sinfulness, right? That's what he says here. Like, if we suffer, it is to be for Christ, not suffering for our own wrongdoing. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. So, like, if you suffer the consequences of your sin, that's not the trigger for rejoicing. Like, if you are um, a generally hateful person, and a disagreeable person that just likes to argue with people, are you going to have a lot of strife in life? Are you going to have a lot of enemies in life? Yeah, you're mean to everybody. So when people are, when you have interpersonal conflict because you just don't know how to love people and treat people, we as humans we can easily slip into like a victim mentality, right? Like we find ways to shift blame on others. Like, oh, you know, they just like to persecute me. For no good reason. I'm like, well, it's not really for no good reason. You're really mean to people. And that's why you have a lot of interpersonal conflict. Like, and so what Peter's telling us is evaluate yourself, right? Like evaluate where these troubles are coming from. Evaluate. Uh, it says in verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers for these things. Um, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in his name. You know, Romans 13 tells us too, like anticipating that we are going, because of Christians, to have conflict with the world around us oftentimes. And so Paul says in Romans 13, as much as it's within your control, be at peace with all men, right? And I mean, even think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. We've read that already. Uh, and earlier he says blessed are the peacemakers like it should be our objective to live in peace and love and harmony with the people around us as much as we can while still being faithful to god right like because we want us to be sure that the persecution is truly because of the righteousness of christ not because of this interpersonal conflict so as much as is within our ability to live at peace with all men, we should. But when persecution does come and we suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God in his name, in this name. Now, let's get to the purpose of suffering. And he tells us the purpose of suffering or the results of suffering in verses 17 and 18. 
He says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And it is, it, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godlessness and the sinner? Now, the wording here is a little bit interesting. And to me, the wording here, it, at first I'm like, okay, what is he trying to say? And here's what I believe he's getting at. Um, it's, even as followers of Christ, is sin still a reality in our lives? Will it ever not be? It's always, it, it doesn't matter how far you progress in the Christian life, you're still going to have sin that you struggle with. And when you think about the church, the church is made up of a whole bunch of us, right? So the church is, even the best of churches, is still going to have its flaws and its challenges. And God, God, he, he's referred to from time to time in Scripture as a consuming fire. In the lives of his people, that's us, and in the lives of the church, like us collectively, he works as a consuming fire. He chastens sin. He, he works to sanctify us and purify us. Or like in the vine and branches illustration, he prunes us so that he can grow us in Christ's likeness. That is actually one of the great purposes of suffering in our lives is to purify us and sanctify us and purge the sin from our lives, turn our hopes towards heaven and continue to conform us more into the image of Christ. But is that sometimes a painful process? Is the sanctifying work of God in our lives oftentimes painful? Absolutely. It, it, it's genuinely not easy sometimes. Now, be very clear here. As a follower of Christ, your sins are 100% forgiven. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. But just because God has forgiven you of your sins, he loves you too much to leave you in your sinfulness. Because he knows, first of all, he hates sin, but he also hates the effects of sin in your life. And so, does that make sense how God can forgive you of your sin, but say, you know, I love you too much, though, to let you to continue to live in your sin. And so God is going to work to sanctify you, to purify you, and to change you. And very often he does that through painful trials and painful discipline, just like a father disciplines their child, right? That's the exact illustration in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, <clears throat> verses 7 to 11. Um, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time to invest for them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. God disciplines us, right? 
like a loving father. How loving is a father who refuses to raise their children and discipline their children? That's not a loving offer, right? Loving fathers, they do things that are painful to their children as they seek to mold them and shape them into the people they need to be. And God does things that are painful to us as our loving Heavenly Father to shape us and mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. The sanctification process can be tough and painful. And here's what I think Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 4. If God's purification of us and His church involves this kind of struggle, and it's not condemnation, it's loving purification, can you imagine what His wrath must be like? How painful must His wrath be? How painful must His condemnation and destruction of unforgiven, godless men be? I think that's what He's saying here in verse 18. And if it is with difficulty, pain, struggle, that the righteous are saved, what will become of the godless men and the sinners? If you're not in Christ, that should strike deep feeling in your heart. Because who was it? I think it was Wayne that said there's only two options, heaven or hell. Is that you? Man. That's the reality. That's exactly right. Like, you can be God's child now and live for Christ now. And yes, there is going to be the purification process that he does as a loving father. And he does it in a way that is full of grace and mercy. Or you can be subject to his total It's heaven or hell. Those are the only two options. And it's kind of the opposite that happens with the wicked a lot, right? Like, as followers of Christ, we often recognize that we are foreigners in this world. And we often suffer in this world in a way that reminds us that this is not our home. It's often the opposite for those who are outside of Christ. They might feel perfectly comfortable in this world. They've figured out how to operate in this world. They've figured out how to be mighty in the flesh and powerful in the flesh. And like, if if you have all the money and prestige, people claim to love you and claim to like you. But all that comes to a catastrophic end on Judgment Sunday. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for us to die once And after that comes the judgment. Verse 19 here, just kind of a summary verse. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in being what is right. Are you struggling as a follower of Christ? There's challenges, there's difficulties in life persecution, keep entrusting yourself to the faithful creator who made you and doing what is right. Don't be surprised by trials. Anticipate them. They're promised over and over again. Don't be surprised by persecution. Instead, 
be prepared. Be growing in Christ, growing in His Spirit, growing in His Word, growing in your reliance on His grace every single day. So when these completely predicted trials and persecutions come, you are ready to stand on the Word of God. You are ready to stand in truth. Set your hope on Christ in His kingdom. Humbly trust in Him. But if, if your hope is in this world, you're already destined for destruction. If your hope is in this world, this world is going to end. And if you're a follower of Christ, you're still going to be tempted from time to time to put your trust in this world, right? As followers of Christ, though, put your hope in Christ and His kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You so much for just the clarity of Your truth that You're so honest with us about life. You don't sugarcoat things, but You tell us the truth about what life is like in a sinful, fallen world. But just as importantly, you show us that you love us and you are with us and you show us how to live. And Spirit, you even indwell us to lead us in your truth and grow us in your truth and strengthen us to live life in a fallen world. And I just pray that you would help us to do that with joy in you and hope in you um, with the objective of glorifying you in all that we do. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.